0: When I talk about mistakes or challenges, the first is you can never exit somebody fast enough. If it's not working, it's time to transition somebody out. I used to try to work through issues and I had a mentor many years ago back in the rational days and the field organization was failing at that point. It was early days and he said what I want you to do is I want you to track your time for the week and we're going to meet at the end of the week and i want to know who you spent your time with so i was like what what are you asking me to do and at the end of the week i came back and i said okay so i spent an hour with the shoe and i spent an hour with renee blah blah blah." and, and he said okay great you know you have a team of 70 you spend time with 10 people where do those people stand in your ranking if you were to force rank your team and I forced ranked the team. And the 10 people I met with that week, all except for one, was in the bottom quartile. And he said, I want you to try something different next week, he goes, I want you to only work with the people in the top quartile and we're gonna meet on Friday. And what I realized was I was trying to save every soul and pull up the bottom quartile as opposed to making the top quartile of people successful. They weren't the people who were screaming for my time. The bottom quartile were. And when I came back the next week, I came back with a grin on my face. And it was a very interesting lesson. I had failed to spend the time with the people that were going to make the company successful and spent virtually all of my time with the people who were failing, trying to get them to a medium bar.
1: From Foundation Capital, this is How to Be to Be a CEO, the show about how to scale your enterprise startup and how to grow from founder to CEO. I'm Ashur Gard, General Partner at Foundation Capital. On this episode of the podcast, my guest is Burton Goldfield, who's had a long and storied career in enterprise software. Burton ran sales at Rational Software, which he helped grow from tens of millions in revenue to almost a billion dollars before it was acquired by IBM. He was also the Chief Revenue Officer at Hyperion, which was acquired by Oracle for almost $4 billion within four years of Burton joining the company. Burton is currently the CEO of Trinet, a public company with $3 billion in revenues, which outsources HR for 17,000 small and mid-sized businesses. But Trinet isn't Burton's only experience in the captain's chair. We start this conversation with his first time as CEO. for a foundation portfolio company. Talk um, to us about that transition. I mean, that's a,
0: the first time CEO role is always a, it's, it's different. It is incredibly different. And I thought I understood it till I got into the role. When I got to Katera, it came to roost because the board of directors, which was an excellent board, was looking to me for those decisions. Who I picked on my team was up to me. How I organized the company was up to me. The ultimate results as a CEO were solely and completely on the shoulders of the CEO. It may sound rudimentary and logical, but it is a very interesting position to be in and I had never been in it before because as one of the executive leadership team at both Rational and Hyperion, many, many years, almost 20 years. It was different being the leader of that team as the CEO. Any advice
1: you have for first-time CEOs? I mean, you've, you've gone through that very successfully, and you've done that this multiple times. You know, First-time CEOs always struggle with this
0: issue. That uh, it's, it's a very lonely job. A couple of pieces of advice I would have. Number one is, you have to absolutely believe that what you are doing is right, because you will be challenged every day And if you second guess yourself every day, you will never get to the goal line. That doesn't mean you have to be stubborn. It means you have to have a resolve around what the end goal is. Yeah. Number two is you have to accept that most CEOs fail. Most small companies fail. So there is a non-trivial probability that you will fail and you have to be accepting of that failure. We all grow up and we're praised for everything we do. In running a company, you have to believe that there is an important impact to the company you're building. The other issue is I believe in large addressable markets. You guys at Foundation, all my investors over the years would say, you need large addressable markets. It would go in one ear, out the other ear for me, particularly as a sales channel, because I could always find a place to sell something. When I got to be CEO, I realized that that large addressable market gave us the opportunity to pivot multiple times and still succeed. You've hit the nail it, on the head. You cannot change markets. You have
1: to. You can change market segments, you can change products, but if you don't start in a large addressable market, life's just hard. It's like, so. It's just, it's just so hard. That
0: hit me and honestly, I had heard that for 20 years and I was slow to pick that up because I never had a problem finding a niche. But what I was not understanding was having that large addressable market gave me many niches to dig down into and that gave me the opportunity to be successful. When BI came out, we could go pretty much anywhere and sell BI. When we had Rational Rose selling object-oriented programming, everybody wanted to see what what Rational Rose had to offer. Those large addressable markets helped us succeed as a company, and I found that having that large addressable market was very important.
1: This is super helpful. One of the things first-time CEOs, especially technical CEOs, struggle with is hiring their first head of sales yes. now you hopefully didn't have that issue given given your background so talk a little bit about what advice you have for a CEO who's never hired a salesperson never managed a salesperson how should they go about hiring their first head of sales what
0: a, what a great question I believe that people who don't appreciate sales particularly people from a technical background don't understand that there are many varieties and interaction models for sales. Some are trust sales, some are volume sales, some are commodity sales, and you need to form a sales organization that is commensurate with the type of products and services that you're selling. The company I'm currently with, Trinet, I believe is a trust sale. Will Trinet be there as I grow my startup? Do you take this liability seriously that if I have a problem, you will be behind me? That is a trust sale. It's very different than selling a product off the shelf and having to do a volume of those products. That is a different type of sales organization. So before you start your first sales organization, what do you believe are the key factors in convincing the market and individual A vertical, whatever you're defining your market as, that your product or service is the one that they should be using. Once you figure that out, I believe that you hire from adjunct industries. If you're vertically oriented and you're selling to biotech companies, I believe having somebody who understands that industry, the biotech industry, which has unique nuances as far as funding, unique half-lives as far as getting FDA approval, unique challenges, will give you a greater chance, not a 100% chance, But a better chance, A better chance of succeeding in that sales organization. So hiring from adjunct industries, the second issue is the culture in the sales organization. Everybody talks about sales culture. It's generally different than the rest of your organization's culture. Some of it's easier to manage, some of it's harder to manage. There's a financial motivation component in sales, which makes it easier to manage. There's a financial component in sales that makes it more challenging from a cultural standpoint.
1: Very well said. You look for salespeople or sales leaders that have some domain knowledge. Yes. That are coming from an adjacent industry. Yes. That have a culture that you sort of will resonate and fit into the culture of the company you're trying to build. Right. Uh, and as you said, it requires really understanding what you're trying to accomplish and what the sales process. You have to have a hypothesis on the sales exactly, process exactly. before you start looking for the sales leader. Because if
0: you find someone that isn't a fit, it's like trying to mix oil and water. Yes. And, and my feeling there is you fail fast and move on. And then the second point is, what is your vision for the company? Because the sales leader who can manage 1,000 reps is different than a sales leader for a 60-person company. I, I want to probe on that because one of the challenges for, for a lot of CEOs is they may
1: have the vision to build a billion-dollar revenue company, but when they're hiring their first sales leader, they have zero or a few hundred thousand dollars in revenue. Right, right. So how
0: far ahead of the reality do you hire? Not too far. I believe that over time, the reality that isn't talked about much is you need to change your teams out. So the people that can get you from a million to 15 million is different than the people who get you from 100 million to 500 million. The analytics, the analysis that's needed, the scale and the scope is radically different. And I, and that doesn't mean people can scale, but you don't hire For the thousand-person sales rep organization when you have 10 reps let's talk a little bit
1: about other executive hiring because you've now lived that in multiple places Uh, what's your philosophy for hiring and you know are there are there a set of common questions you ask
0: everyone you I've had a philosophy around hiring that has served me well because I believe I've done two things right one I've been lucky And two is, I've hired great people. It is very much a team effort. There is so little that I control. With 3,000 people and 42 offices at Trinet now, what I do control is who my leadership team is. Absolutely. So I have always hired for core values and motivation, not knowledge, skills, and experience. And you go, why is that? Because in a business situation, you cannot change somebody's core values or motivation. You can add to their skills, increase their knowledge, and and, and build their experience. And what I find is that is not a value judgment on core values and motivation, It's, it's an alignment between your management team around core values and motivation. You can set up a culture where you know, where each person wanting to be the best may work in one culture, but that's not a team environment. I was accused a couple years ago, somebody interviewed me, they said, oh, we know you, you're the team guy. And I said, well, to me, that's an insult. They said, what do you mean it's an insult? I said, I wanna be the results guy. I happen to get results by forming teams that work well together. Absolutely. If yeah. I believe a means to an end. If I believe command and control work better, I'm not against it. I have just found that by having shared leadership, you can get better results. But it's not that I believe teams are better than a command and control. For me and my style, having shared leadership works, works very well. I want to bounce ideas around. I don't think I have the best ideas in the room. I want to come up with the answer with a group of people around the table. Now in some companies that would be shocking. The CEO saying, okay, let's all just shoot the breeze here about what our next step is that works for me. It may not work for you. And there's a lot of great CEOs who are command and control. What I would recommend to a CEO is to really understand your own style and go for the results. The results, the happiness and satisfaction of the customers is what you're there yeah. for. No, how I, I, you build the culture, how you do your your management style is all based on what result you're trying to and achieve. And
1: multiple styles work. I mean, I you're, you're spot on. I mean, I have this conversation with with my portfolio company CEOs, even on day one. You can you can you can have a dictatorial style, and you can have a very collaborative style, and both styles work right. as long as you're clear. This is my style, and
0: you hire to that style, right? That's exact. So there, you've just proven my point. If you hire for the right core values and motivation for your style, you'll be okay. How do you do that? There's no easy way it's spending time with candidates. I see them in social situations as well as in the office. I like to spend time with them and I get a feel for who they are, their personal and professional relationships, I get a feel for how they position themselves in the experiences they've had. I like to look at the failures as much as the successes, because you learn more from your failures than your successes. And in the end, there is no substitute other than investing time before you hire somebody and feel good and anxious to see them on the next visit. What I find personally in those interviews is, After a few hours of spending time with someone, I get a gut feel whether they're the type of person that you want to be that I want to be be with. with. And if I am not excited to see them for the next interview, I know that that's probably not the person for me. But there's no shortcut. I don't do any tricks or quizzes or a, a, a trial period. I spend time both professionally and socially over meals and I can tell where the conversation goes. And then, a pers- you know, over the years, you've had many such people
1: that, that have joined your leadership yes. teams. How long do you give them before you, you know it's not working or it's working?
0: I don't think there's any formula, but I've had as many failures as successes, and I don't think that in most cases the failure was the compatibility with the rest of the team. And at that point, you exit people with honor, and you bring on somebody else. One of the key questions for
1: CEOs early on in their careers is, do I have product market fit? And what does it really mean to have product market fit? And and you've been at multiple companies that were relatively early. Yes. Uh, So, you
0: know, what's your point of view? How do you define product market fit? It's got to be something people need, not just people feel they want it's really important to spend a lot of time with the customers. As a CEO of a $3 billion company, every week I'm with customers and prospects, every week. Because if I stay in my office, I will get a bunch of stupid ideas that are gonna cause a lot of people in my company pain. I can give you specific examples of what I've learned in the last seven days. So I believe, particularly in the early stages, spending the commensurate amount of time with a customer to make sure that the implementation of what you're building makes sense is really, really important.
1: So the other question a lot of founding CEOs struggle with is, you know, how do they assess whether a VP of sales is cutting it or not? <laughs> you know, you hire someone, they're doing well, they're you know, some salespeople are working out, some aren't. There's you know, there's some are ramping and so there's there's a lot of noise right in the data. And so and you've you've managed lots of VPs of sales yes. in addition to having been one. How do you make that judgment call?
0: You answered your own question. There's a lot of noise in the data, but you have to figure out which metrics are important to you. And those metrics have to be the headlights to the future. If your metrics are activity, or number of calls, or conversions, or dollars per rep. Pick a few metrics and let all the other stuff go for the time being. And, and bank that those metrics are the right metrics. If they're not trending in the right direction, you need a new VP of sales. You can't use the excuse, we have too much turnover, next year it'll be better with a better marketing campaign. There's a minimum, just like there's minimum viable products, There's a minimum viable channel when you back into the cost of sales that says, I can spend X number of dollars uh, to generate Y recurring revenue. And if you work your way back, you pick the metrics that are important for your organization and you say, I can only spend $500 on leads. And of those $500 on leads, my sale price is X and I have to convert whatever it is, one, two, three deals, this is the the model. I would change my head of sales before I would change my model. And what I find is everybody tries to change the model to meet their head of sales. And that doesn't work. Because the math still is the math. The math is the math. Math is the The math. math. And I have had great success with telesales. I have had great success with channel sales and there is more than one way to get to the market. And you should always be looking at different channels and different ways to get to market, as opposed to relying on one individual or one construct. We'll be right back.
2: If hiring engineers isn't keeping you up at night, either your company's not growing or you already know about touring. Listeners of this podcast know that finding the right team is critical to the success of your startup. But recruiting in the Valley is time-consuming and expensive. That's why Turing exists. Turing helps companies hire remote Google-caliber engineers at less than half the cost with the push of a button. To clear Turing's engineering bar, developers need to pass a rigorous 40-hour coding challenge. We accept less than 1% of developers who apply. Turing has fully vetted developers today for full-stack, front-end, back-end, iOS, Android, AI, and data science roles you pay only for hours worked and have the option to scale up on demand. So, if you're ready to hire elite software engineers, go to Turing.com and sign up for our two-week trial. That's T-U-R-I-N-G dot com. If you don't like the work your engineer has done in the first two weeks, pay nothing. Go to Turing.com to double your runway today.
0: This is a great story. I was called by the recruiter who had put me into Hyperion. And he said, I'm working with a company and I'm starting to build a slate of CEOs. It's probably not something you're interested in. You mind if I put your name on there? Because I've already done a background check. When these guys check on you, they know you're a good guy. At least it shows I'm filling out the slate of candidates. It was Trinet. I had never heard of Trinet, never heard of Trinet, did not understand the financial construct around Trinet. And here I was going on an interview where they said, we're working with all the tech startups in Silicon Valley. And I said, well, that's funny because I'm working at a tech startup, Katara, 50 people foundation and Kleiner and I've never heard of you so if you own Silicon Valley I must be not the smartest CEO out there we went through the interview process Uh, I ended up in New York with uh, a a wonderful um, private equity firm General Atlantic interviewing with the General Atlantic team and I was hired by the founder with a stated goal to grow the company scale on a national level to take this construct of outsourcing HR for small and medium businesses, providing a software platform, providing HR support, a transfer of liability, an incubator, if you will, for these small companies. And I got fascinated by both the financial construct, but more importantly, by the companies they were serving. I was getting a lot of inbound, and the inbound was like this. You sold one company to Sam Palmisano at IBM, Rational Uh Software, and Hyperion went to Larry Ellison at Oracle. We have a bunch of companies we want you to pretty up and sell for us. I said, I'm not interested. They said, you can make a ton of money. You might have to rip out the middleware layer. It was .NET back then, and you'll sell it to Microsoft, blah, blah, blah. And... They were going, what do you mean you're not interested? I said, I want to build an enduring company. I want a company, I love the success of Hyperion Irrational, but they don't exist anymore. I want a company that will exist last forever. Forever. TriNet gave me that opportunity because I looked at it, there wasn't natural choirs, and I believed that if I could grow TriNet to a reasonable size, I would reach an exit velocity which would make me the acquirer as instead against the, of the acquiree yeah so that was my that was my theory at the time and i loved the board and general lanick i came in and was in for a rude awakening tell me more the rude awakening was this was a phenomenal company a phenomenal company that was growing slowly had been around for 20 years, so an embedded culture. I had spent my whole life in tech startups, which are grow or die. And I remember I came up in front of the room um, in San Leandro, where the office had been built for many years and said, at that time, we will be a billion dollar company. And the questions were, why? Why do you wanna be a billion dollar company? Wow.
1: That's probably not and the I first way. Been,
0: that's right. <laughs> and, and coming from tech, you understand why that was such a interesting dichotomy, which was we're happy. We have a great company. We have a good set of clients. And I spent months talking about impact. If this is such a great construct, why have it only in Silicon Valley? Why have it only for this subset of companies? So one of the challenges was creating a culture where impact was important and that impact is measured in penetration and scale as we scale right and by the way as we scale our insurance offerings get larger and better and cheaper our liability transfer gets more impactful our ability to build software platforms gets more extensive and our network of customers working with, with each other gets greater so over the years we've But That's gone, a big cultural change. That's was a very a that's a
1: big culture. How many well, of the original team survived three years later? It was only when I got of here. The executive so uh,
0: um, the company was 350 people when I got here. It's 3000 today. Um, the the revenue was in about 100 million and we're at 3.4 billion. There's still many people who have been here over 20 years who I talked to. Um, At the executive team level, there's nobody left. Uh, This is probably my third implementation of the executive team. The one I found, the one I brought in, and now a new team.
1: So it seems like this is one of your key lessons for founders and CEOs is as companies scale in every phase of growth, the team that got you here isn't necessarily going to get you there.
0: Isn't necessarily going to get you there, and and it goes back to this core values and motivation. If you feel comfortable declaring success, you're not a candidate to stay on the management team. If we did, the IP, we did the IPO, we got to stand stand up at the New York Stock Exchange on the podium, bang the gavel, get the stock price three times the IPO price. But if you're satisfied at that, if you're point, satisfied, you're It's gone. time for you to go. It's time for you to go. My problem is I'm not satisfied. It was never measured in terms of an IPO or a stock price. It was measured in terms of market impact. I want to say that we, Trinet, are having a significant impact on small and medium business success. What do you look for from your board? One of the most interesting and challenging jobs as a CEO is working with your board of directors. Because you immediately have six, seven, eight, or nine bosses. That's the way I look at it. And if one of my board members is unhappy, then I have an unhappy boss. And generally, when you have a board, there's a lot of really smart people some who may be financially deeply involved in the company some who may not be but all with fairly different perspectives the other thing that's interesting about being a ceo and managing a board or working with a board is the fact that they get a small snippet into your company in my company every 13 weeks and a few phone calls in between in startups generally once a month but ultimately What took me a while to realize is they are relying on you to drive the results of the company. They are there for information, they are there to provide guidance, but you are solely and completely responsible for the end result of the company. And the minute that you try as a CEO to put some of that on another individual, is the time you're not doing your job as the CEO? So let's probe that a little bit okay. because I think what you
1: described is the ideal relationship where board members, you know, are available for advice; they're available, uh, you know, for perspectives. Often, in the case of younger companies, introductions. Uh, but not all board members think that way, right? You know, many board members think they know better, right? Many board members, you know, will come in every four weeks or every eight weeks or 12 weeks. And they want to make a decision yes. based on incomplete information. How do you deal with that as a
0: CEO? It goes back to the, the fundamental point I'm trying to make, which is you are solely responsible for the outcome of the results. If you are swayed, pushed around, or make decisions that you believe are wrong, you have to own those decisions you cannot put the decision on the fact that i had a forceful board member and it and it, and it all flows well said, very yeah. well together because once you take responsibility 100% not 99% it becomes a lot easier and those conversations with your board become clear now the board can choose to find another ceo but until you're the CEO, you're is the, the CEO. CEO. That's exa- you said, it. and that's exactly it. Ultimately, the board wakes up every morning with two decisions: Do I keep my CEO? Do I fire my CEO? And if you keep that in mind when you're having conversations with your board, you will be in a lot more comfortable position. That means you avail yourself of their knowledge, their expertise, their passion, their experience, but ultimately you have to make the right decision as the CEO of the company, and that's why you're the CEO, that's why you're taking the risk, that's why you're getting the reward, and that's part of the fun and frustration of being being a CEO, period. I think think very well said.
1: You know, the the primary audience for us is people who are still in in some cases have no revenues or have tens of millions of revenues, small companies, Their dream is to be, you know, as big as Trinet uh,
0: over a decade. So what advice do you have for them? My advice is you can do it, particularly since I did. And I am an unlikely character from inner city Philly to actually do it. I, I grew up in West Oak Lane in a row house. I did not grow up in a neighborhood with anybody who was involved in technology, in software, in any aspect of where my life ended up going. I think it's been a major advantage because I never had expectations of where I would go just that I wanted to be part of a team. And that served me well today. I feel sorry for the kids that grow up in Silicon Valley today because they need a million and a half dollars to get a starter house. My 17 foot wide row house on Cheltenham Avenue in Philly. 17 feet wide row house, 40 on a block, 40 facing it, and a a concrete driveway down the middle. Was an eleven thousand dollar house. Eleven thousand. So I was never chasing anything. One of the challenges I have is when I mentor people, they say, "When did you know you wanted to be a CEO?" And I generally comment and say, when I figure out if I do, I'll let you know. (laughs) It's been an evolution to be part of teams in different roles where we could have an impact. To build great software at Rational, to have an impact on multinationals at Hyperion and travel the world, and to help small businesses at Trinet. My advice is take risk. I think early in my career, and I shudder that I almost did not come to California for personal reasons. It was really hard to make the decision to pick up and leave. And by the way, I still have my friends from kindergarten in Philadelphia, and they still can't figure out what I'm doing in that weird state of California. Philly is a very insular community. People don't leave. And there's nothing wrong with that. But they could not figure out why I went to California. And I almost made the mistake of not making that move. And, and that would have been the biggest mistake of my life because everything that I'm telling you about was facilitated because of the energy, because of the opportunity, because of the funding, because of the people that I met you're in absolutely- Palo Alto. My advice is absolutely believe in what you're doing, and the day you don't believe in it, step out. Find an honorable way to step out and pursue something else. My advice is there is still an incredible amount of great opportunities to build impactful companies. We have not scratched the surface in the United States of building those great companies. There's more to be done. Absolutely.
1: Thank you for joining us today, Burton. Uh, It was great having you on the podcast.
0: It's an honor to be here, and I look forward to talking to you more in the future.
1: Thank you. That's it for this episode. You can find past episodes and subscribe to future ones on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. How to B2B a CEO is brought to you by Foundation Capital, an early stage venture capital firm with 27 IPOs, including Netflix, Lending Club, TubeMobile, and Sunrun. I'm Asher Gard, a general partner at Foundation Capital. I'm passionate about helping B2B entrepreneurs who are trying to solve hard problems. So if this podcast speaks to you, if you're interested in growing from a technical founder into a business leader, drop me a line. Thanks, and see you next time.